1: In this episode of Boss Vials,
2: My goal is, is to help be one of the many leaders who can help American business be relevant on inclusion. That, that's my goal. I would love to be remembered as somebody who led a movement that had America's workplaces be fully inclusive.
1: P.W.C. Chairman Tim Ryan. The unexpected turn his entire leadership plan took just days into the job after he says he witnessed the unraveling of America on race relations. He ignored those closest to him who warned him not to take on race and instead launched a company-wide conversation about it. Ryan has taken his message beyond PWC, calling on all Fortune 1000 CEOs to sign his diversity
2: pledge. One of the reasons we formed CEO Action is because individually, we're all spending money, investment, and time. But diversity and inclusion is not a competitive issue. It is a societal opportunity.
1: Plus, why he says we have to close the income and opportunity gap, in his words, to keep capitalism alive. And his political ambitions. Will he run for office? Here's my conversation with PWC's Kim Ryan. Kim Ryan, thank you for being here.
2: Thanks, Poppy. It's great to be here.
1: Nice to have you here. So when you took the top job, at PwC. You had, as you describe it, quite the 100 day plan. Everything was mapped out in your head. You've done everything sort of by the book. You have this plan, you're gonna bring in your management team, you're excited to get started. Week one, everything changes. Yeah. What happened?
2: So the first thing that taught me that the best laid plans don't always work. Right? We had a terrific plan. First couple of days of the week went great and then we started to see the unraveling, in my view, of America and, we, and ultimately we saw the week ended with the Dallas shootings, and we woke up that morning and on that Friday morning, and it was clear something bad had happened, and as we started talking to our people, it was it was very concerning. And I got my people around the table and said, what do you do? And we didn't even understand the magnitude of it at that point in time, and I realized that the plan was out the window.
1: The unraveling of America. Yeah. You're talking yeah. about race relations in this country. Yeah. In in two thousand and you know sixteen seventeen
2: summer two thousand sixteen yeah to be clear, and it was just it was clear to me at that point in time, something needed to be done. And and from a business perspective, there's been a lot of things done. But as a new CEO of PwC, the question was, what do you do?
1: What told you that it was those shootings uh, and and the ensuing protests that we saw? I mean, this goes back to to a long ways, but recently to Trayvon Martin, that case, et cetera, et cetera. Um, What told you as the chairman of PwC, I need to deal with this internally at a corporate level?
2: One of the biggest responsibilities that I have, we have just over 50,000 people, is to take care of our people at its most foundational level and their families by extension. And what we did on that Friday is what most companies did. We sent out an email to be candid, it was nondescript, it was, wasn't was heroic, it was a basic email saying that we know something bad has happened, yeah. we know what's on your minds, we know that you're worried about it, and please know that we care and we're gonna to try to do everything we can sort of to help you.
1: Sort of the safe corporate but, response. Yes,
2: without a doubt, the safe corporate response. What came back, Poppy, over that weekend were hundreds of emails. I read every single one of them, and there was a common theme, and it was summed up best in one of those emails, it said, when I came to work on Friday morning, the silence was deafening. Mm. And for me, that hit me like a ton of bricks because we are fairly progressive. Most of the professional service firms, including PBC, were very progressive in terms of people, we've been at diversity and inclusion for well over a decade. And all of a sudden it hit me, wow, here we are, we think we're open and can talk about issues Yet people came to work that Friday morning and they said the silence was deafening. Yeah. And for me that was a showstopper moment that weekend. Came into work that Monday morning and, and said to our my team, What do we do with this? Like our people, the ones we care about, the ones we're trying to nurture and grow professionally and personally, feel like they're coming to work and can't talk about they
1: it They feel uncomfortable, which means they're not going to perform at their highest level, which Without ultimately a is a business problem for Without you. A doubt. Um A bunch of people advised you not to take on the issue of race.
2: Right, right. Why? So let's, I'll continue with the story. So I said to my my team, what do we do? And very candidly, even around my team, which I'm very proud of, there were those that felt like we needed to be very aggressive. There were those that were, even my team, very cautious, be careful, political hot potato, don't know what to do, not sure everybody has the same view, be careful about the brand because we don't want to upset our clients. And ultimately, I had to make a decision. That's that's the job. And the decision I made was, let's talk about it. We had invested millions over decades in programs, which are important, but it was clear to me we weren't comfortable talking about it. And yeah. so we made a decision to have our first day-long discussion on race.
1: This was something called a conversation you can mean, color break. Yes, yes. Uh, what was the plan? I mean, I'm just going to get a bunch of employees yeah. on the table. We're going to talk about race, or was there more here?
2: So the idea was to be, get get comfortable talking about it. And we're spread across all the, the entire country. We have people out of clients on planes. What we said is some very broad guidelines. We said we want you to talk about it. Uh-huh. We want you to convene in groups of two. Uh-huh. We want you to convene in groups of 20 in your natural settings. And we want you to talk about how you feel. And we said the only rules are... Be respectful mm-hmm. and don't make it one about right or wrong and learn about each other.
1: What about your critics or naysayers who look at this, Tim, from the outside and they say, what is a white man from you know, the outskirts of Boston know about the challenges of diversity?
2: So I think there's, you're always one of the things you learn as a CEO is you're always going to have critics. <laughs> Whatever you do, there's going to be yeah. If you don't have thick skin, the biggest thing they can teach is thick skin and you've got to do what you believe in right. But
1: you had to hear some of that.
2: Without a doubt. And, and just even when we decided to do that day-long discussion on race, one CEO said to me that I was visiting clients with, he said, you're crazy. He he put me, he said, you're crazy. This is going to blow up in your face. Really? Because think of how raw it was in the summer of 2016. And, and yet... And
1: still is. And
2: still is. And so we went to have that conversation, and it was risky, to be very frank, as a newly elected CEO, and at PwC you are elected as yes. a CEO, And as a newly elected CEO to take this on right away, but it was the right thing to do for our people, and it's got to start with our people. And while I may not be Latino or black or female, I am a leader of our people, and that's where my responsibility lies to our ethics, to our values, to our people, and to our clients. And so I think it's the responsibility, regardless of what you look like or who you are, to take this issue on, and that's what we did.
1: This has become defining for you yeah. in in your leadership, period. Can you talk me through so far what the result has been? Right. I mean, do you track numbers? Has this helped you with recruitment? Has this hurt? Right. What has it done?
2: So I think the biggest thing it's done is it's earned us a seat at the table to have an influence. And, and when you back up... What we did is we realized through our people pushing me. What we did is we realized that as a CEO of an organization that has the breadth that we have, I have a responsibility not only to our business but to society. And that came because one of our people, one of our black senior managers, asked me. He said, "Tim, great that we had the discussion, but what's your role outside of PwC?" When he asked me that, I was like, "God, give me a break! It was such a risk. Can I just like Like, let me try to do this
1: at my company, not?"
2: And, and, but he challenged me, and then that was what really, it wasn't in the 100-day plan to do this, but that was one that challenged me to say, what is that role?
1: How did you know, though, Tim, that your employees would want this? Because you, t- you yeah. bet on that. Y- right. You said, I think this needs to be talked about internally. Right. Um, but you also bet that your employees would want to have that conversation, uh, and d- did they?
2: Well, with 55,000 people, give or take, or 50,000 plus, you're going to have all types of views. And this is where, as a leader, you have to have your moral compass. And you have to do what you think is right. You have to do what is in the best interest of the organization and the best interest of society. And in my judgment, after getting a lot of input from many different parties inside and outside the firm, it was the right thing. But it has been overwhelmingly positive for our employees mm-hmm. to see us not only try to improve our game inside, but take a leadership position outside in the outside world. And, and I think it goes right back to our core values of solving problems mm-hmm. in society that are really important.
1: And we'll talk about what you've done outside of PwC in a moment, getting all of these CEOs together from right. Fortune 500 companies for this basically right. action council. Before that, though, you learned a lot personally, internally, about what your peers at work right. are going through. You said, you know, that you learned that that a number of your black professionals at PwC have to t- teach their kids right. what it's like to get pulled over by uh, a police officer in their car for no reason other than the color of their skin or that they carry their PwC business card with them in case they get pulled over right. to prove that they can you know, afford the car that they're driving in. That reality struck you so much.
2: Yeah. It was like, oh, my God. Like sitting down with our black professionals in Atlanta, in Philadelphia, in New York, and hearing those stories was amazing. And it taught me, you go back to your point around a business imperative. Yeah. Here we are as a leader thinking everybody's showing up to, to take the hill, serve our clients, and knowing this is what's really in their minds. And it made me realize both as a compassionate human being and as a leader who's trying to get the most out of their organization. Yeah. If we don't create, make it safe for them to talk about what's really in their minds, we'll never be the, the business that we want and serve our clients the way we want to. But to hear those stories, Poppy, was heartbreaking. It was absolutely heartbreaking. And what embarrasses me the most is I didn't know that. You didn't know.
1: You weren't living it. Yeah. Without a doubt. So on the outside, let's talk about what you've done, the CEO Action for Diversity. You know, there are also naysayers and critics who would say, this is a really good public relations ploy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think you've taken it right. a lot farther right. than that right. for people to really believe in right. this. Right. But you've, ca- what is it, you've called on all the CEOs of Fortune 1000 companies yeah. to join you?
2: Yep. So in, in the normal course of business, yeah. we're meeting with clients every day. Just we're sitting with CEOs. You have this wonderful privilege of traveling across the country and the world and meeting with CEOs. What I decided to start doing, because I was pushed by my people, is start to talk to CEOs about it. So we'd talk about the economy, we'd talk about tax reform, we'd talk about technology, and then I'd say, let's talk about your workforce, let's talk about diversity and inclusion. And almost every case you get, yeah, that's important, and I'm doing it. And you get varying gradations of, I'm there, we're doing great, or I struggle with it. In every case, I said, well, wouldn't you benefit from sharing ideas with other CEOs? and coming together and also recognizing we have a responsibility outside outside of our companies. Mm-hmm. As we started that dialogue popping in the fall and the winter of two thousand sixteen, I started to ask CEOs, would you come together? I had a couple other CEOs who really helped me, so there's a man named, by the name of Ron Parker who's the president and CEO of the Executive Leisure Council mm-hmm. and also David Taylor, Procter Gamble. Yeah. And the three of us came together and said, what about if we could pull together a large scale of CEOs? so we could demonstrate to society that we know we have a role. And we, came, we had a dialogue and we said, you know what's funny? We can solve almost any business problem. We can restructure balance sheets, we can deal with technology, we can do M&A, right. we can turn our organization around. If we yeah. really put our minds to this, can we make a big dent and this big societal challenge that we have. That was a dialogue that we had.
1: Did all of the CEOs you've asked so far say yes, or did any of them turn you down?
2: We've had hundreds of CEOs say yes to join, and literally every week there's dozens coming no in. No
1: one has said no so to you? So
2: we've had some say no,
1: And to why? Be clear. I'm just interested in why.
2: So it, it ranges. So if I think one of the most provocative reasons, people are still afraid to stick their heads out, because you have CEOs who have put their names and their company's brands mm-hmm. to say, I care but I know I can do more, and I'm committing to trying to do more across three broad areas. And the commitment to be clear what they're signing up for, they're signing up to make their workplaces safe to talk about the important issues. And if we're intellectually honest, including at PwC, we're not completely safe now.
1: More from my interview with PwC's Tim Ryan after the break. It's not just about talking the talk or even forming these councils. It's about living it inside companies and the the actual diversity of your workforce in terms of gender, race, socioeconomic, makeup, et cetera. Looking at your latest numbers in PwC, what we found, 33 percent of the workforce is a minority, 47 percent of the workforce is a female, and when you look at leadership, 90 percent of partners are women, 35 percent of leadership are women, 40 percent of leadership are minority. Those numbers beat a lot of corporate America, um, but is it enough for you? It's not parity uh, on gender on the gender front for sure. Um, is it enough?
2: So to be clear, it'll never be enough. To be clear, when I look at where we are, and I'm going to go way back to the 100-day plan, we felt going into the summer of 2016 that we were good. That we had been recognized. We had awards. We felt we were good. We had programs. We had a decade and a half of progress, but what? We realized in the summer of 2016 that we hadn't arrived because we didn't understand how that black professional felt about driving around and getting pulled over with his business card. And that's what caused us, are we proud of our numbers? We're proud of the progression of our numbers. But are we proud about where we are and where we want to be, especially when you start to get down into the details? No. Like I am incredibly proud of my leadership team. My leadership team is 40% minority. It is 35% women, and there's one member of the LGBT community. My leadership team stacks up and and is ahead of any organization that we've come across, and it gives us, our people, the ability to look up. Mm -hmm. But does that mean we've arrived? No way. And one of the things I'm most proud of is, when you look at the three main lines of business, the power positions in the firm, headed by a Latino woman and two black men. We've made great progress, but no way have we arrived. But by having the dialogue around how we really feel, that's a major catalyst to get into what we need to do. Do you
1: meet with somewhere 20 to 50 CEOs a day, I read?
2: <laughs> so I wouldn't say quite I, I uh, don't
1: think you sleep. Probably, Did the article get it wrong? Four,
2: <laughs> I, I have a high degree of energy. but so That's where the six kids comes in. I they yeah, keep you running. Yeah. But uh, I meet with probably 400 CEOs a year.
1: All right. So you meet with right. a lot of these CEOs. Right. Um, candidly speaking, does corporate America as a whole – invest enough in their employees' well-being on issues like this?
2: So, great question. I'm going to come back to CEO Action. Because one of the reasons we formed CEO Action is because individually we're all spending money, investment, and time. But diversity and inclusion is not a competitive issue. It is a societal opportunity. And so the idea behind CEO Action was in addition to what we're doing in our four walls, to share our best practices and leverage our investment mm-hmm. for the benefit of all businesses, so we can do better. So, in the United States, we spend eight billion dollars a year on women, on diversity and inclusion, but not all businesses benefit from the leverage of that investment. So, one of the commitments that CEOs made by signing for CEO Action mm-hmm. is to share best practices. So, on the website www.ceoaction.com, there's over 350 best practices that whether you are PwC Uh or a 10-person shop in St. Louis, Missouri, we all benefit. And so I believe it is we also need to spend more, but I also think we need to leverage the investment across all business. And that's one of the things I'm most proud of, because if you're a startup company and you want to give unconscious bias training, that's on the website now. You don't have to invest in it. You can leverage it.
1: When you look at the business case for this, I'm sure you make it to these CEOs. Has there been any business that has invested in this in their employees' well-being in discussing topics like race, et cetera, that has not benefited from it? I mean, do the numbers bear it out for these companies that are your clients across the board?
2: So I'll share with you a story. I, what I would tell you is this clear momentum. So back in November, we had 70 CEOs who, have, who had signed up for CEO Action for Diversity and Inclusion come together here in New York yeah. in a closed-door session to talk about what they're really worried about. Am I going to say the wrong thing? How do I do it? How do yeah, you do it? Yeah. One CEO came to me and he said, you know why I'm here today? He said, because my employees came to me and said, why haven't we signed up for the CEO Action for Diversity and Inclusion? Why aren't you part of this movement? He didn't know about it. He wanted to do the right thing. Yeah. And now he's benefiting and his organization now benefits from the lessons learned what he learned in that session, and the sharing of the best practices. So we have a lot of momentum, and you can see organizations benefiting from the sharing of the practices.
1: One thing you've said that struck me, Tim, is you said you only go around in life once. Don't miss your opportunity. And your warning to fellow CEOs is, don't mitigate risk too much. If you ignore things around you, the trends that are happening, you lose your relevance. You know, I think so many times CEOs can get so sort of lawyered up and they have to be, they're so scared about what they're going to say publicly in an interview or what they're going to tweet that they do sort of mitig- mitigate all risk and they're not talking about those issues. Yeah. And you're warning them on yeah. that.
2: Yeah, I call it like we have to stay away from the blah, like getting blah, blah, blah. Like the, the reality is we're all capable of running businesses. We wouldn't We wouldn't be in our shoes and we have great teams. We have a bigger responsibility, and when we reflect on our careers, we have the biggest opportunity of a lifetime in front of us to make America inclusive. That's what we need to be shooting for, because our businesses are gonna do fine. They'll do fine. We grow a point less, a point more, but we need to look at ourselves as CEO community and say, we're blessed with this platform, and we're in these roles for a short period of time, and we all know the average life of a CEO, is average tenure of a CEO is very low. Yeah. The question is, what are we going to do to make a real difference? And we need to be more comfortable talking about these issues. And by the way, our stakeholders want us to talk about these issues.
1: That is, you know, the complete sort of anti-Milton Friedman, the business of business is business, the bottom line argument. Yeah. This I've seen this progression yeah. of CEOs over, I'd say, the last, you know, four to five years. Uh, people like you taking on risk like this. Um, Howard Schultz yeah. at Starbucks, Mark Benioff at yeah. Salesforce, Sheryl Sandberg, COO right. at, at Facebook, taking on these issues, becoming activists right. in a way, right. um, is this the new era, era of being a, a, a chief executive officer that you cannot just perform well for the bottom line, for the business, for the shareholders?
2: One of the one of the topics I, I speak a lot with fellow CEOs and boards about is exactly that point. The reality is, in the old days, five years ago, mm-hmm. a CEO needed to be able to take care of their customers, yep. their employees, and their investors. The complexity of the job of the CEO today is multiplied by tenfold because you have a much broader group of stakeholders. You have society looking at you. And the skill sets a CEO needs today are much more than what a CEO needed just five years ago. Because if you're not engaging with society, Uh they will judge you harshly. If you're not engaged with society, you won't win the war for talent. They won't you, want to work for you. And you won't be relevant to your customers.
1: Here's an example internally of something you saw on your team where you stepped in that certainly struck me. Someone on your team, so that means very high up at the company, referred to over and over women colleagues as girls. And they had no idea that that was offensive. And you did. Right, right. So what did you do?
2: So pull them aside. right? Pull them aside. It, mo- I wake up fundamentally believing that people try to do the right things. And most people in the world do try to do the right things. And we need to get more comfortable teaching each other around what's acceptable and what might be offensive or viewed as disrespectfully. He just didn't know. He he literally just didn't know. And I pulled him aside and I, I'll make up his name and say, it was Joe. I said, Joe, you understand how people view that term? Mm-hmm. And I actually gave him a couple of things to go read and ask him to think about it. He He's a leader. He's passionate about inclusion. He just didn't understand, which goes to this whole point about unconscious bias training. It is hugely important for companies to invest in that. It's hugely important for companies to make it available to all their employees. And it's also important that we begin to teach that in the college level as well, because your best leaders are gonna be inclusive leaders.
1: Sexual harassment, sexual assault, this is a moment. This is a wave in America. This is, call it a Me Too moment, what have you. Um, how has that changed your thinking, Tim, about how you address that issue and protect your employees at PwC and hold people accountable?
2: So I was at a board here in New York and one director said, she said, this is tsunami. We get ready, like it's, it's just yep. coming. So it, it is probably confirmed what we started in July of 2016. If our workplaces aren't safe Mm -hmm. to talk about what's really on our mind, whether it's race or sexual harassment, then shame on us. If we are not creating that environment, and it just goes to show you how far we still have to go. So
1: are you changing things? Policies, Mm -hmm. training, reporting?
2: First thing we're doing is we are reinforcing the ability to have the safe, hard conversations which we started back in the summer of July 2016. So just reinforcing. The second thing that we're doing Is We're making sure people understand what our values are, and we don't treat people that way. We deplore that behavior, and we are also now having safe conversations about sexual harassment, no different than we did around race.
1: So people feel like they can come forward and that those perpetrators will be held accountable. Without a doubt. Let's talk about your upbringing and what led you to this point. Frankly, what gave you the chutzpah? to take on this issue of race when you became CEO and not uh, sort of take the safe route, if you will. Tell me about your parents.
2: So my parents were working class. Um, My father worked for the Edison company, the utility, which was very common and where I grew up. And my mother was a cashier at a supermarket. My parents did not focus on education growing up. Mm. I have no childhood memory whatsoever of doing homework, (laughs) but I remember that we were taught to work very hard. We were taught to respect others, and we were taught to be honest. And if we ever got caught lying, look out. Yeah. And that's what was focused on in my childhood. And from a very early age, whether it be paper route or one of the best jobs I ever had working at the supermarket, mm-hmm. was we were taught to work hard.
1: You have said that your parents were only high school educated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, in fact, you were the first to mm-hmm. go on to college. But they were the best educators you, have, you could have ever asked for. Yeah. When you sit back today and think about here's the most important lesson they taught me, what is it?
2: The most important lesson my parents taught me was to treat people the way you want to be treated. The golden rule. It's that simple. And, you know, I've said, as you said, I've said my parents weren't college educated. Life can get really complicated or you can keep it really simple. And I think all of us need to have benefited from a core set of values and apply it in really complex situations. And that gift is what I got from my parents.
1: Let's talk about the supermarket. You worked at the supermarket. Ten years. (laughs) um, And you say one of the most important life lessons you Mm -hmm. ever learned was working there, actually from something that you did that's not very admirable.
2: Right. Right. So I I worked at the supermarket for ten years through high school, college, and I even moonlighted my first two years at PwC. When I was a sophomore in college, I was working in the back room, And I prided myself on being the hardest worker there, and that was really important to me. And we were shucking lettuce with two other co-workers. And we were making fun of a boy who worked at the supermarket in the maintenance department who was just slow. He had a disability. He was slow. And his first name was Larry. And we were making fun of him. And the store manager, a guy by the name of Richie Ordway, walked by. And he heard us, and he pointed at us. And I was leading the group in that discussion. And he stopped, and he pointed, and he said, knock it off. He's giving you 100% of what he can give you. What more do you want? Poppy? that story has defined every way I now try to lead. And I learned that at the supermarket. I didn't learn it at Babson. I didn't learn it at PwC. And when I look at leading people, it's not about making people like me. It's about creating environments where people can achieve their full potential to what they're capable of doing. I learned that at the supermarket.
1: And then you, you know, years later, go on to work at PwC, join entry level, right. and you're in the position of vulnerability. Right. You feel sort of less than. You come from a family without a lot of money, right. and uh, your mom took you shopping <laughs> for did. your first work suits. She- we bought some collared shirts, right. but they were short-sleeved, right. and you didn't think twice about it right. until you got into this meeting. First right. day at PwC, what happened? My
2: first day in June of 1988, my mother and I went to see us in Robux, and we got our suits, and I got my couple of suits, and it's a hot day in June. There's 60 of us in the room, and we're we're working away, learning the culture and learning about the firm, and it's getting hot and hot in the room, and people are taking their jackets off. and. I noticed as people were taking their jackets off, they all had long-sleeved white shirts on. And, of course, underneath, I had a short-sleeved white shirt on. And I was hesitant to take my jacket off, and it finally got so hot, I took it off. And I felt everybody was looking at me, and I didn't fit in. But what was remarkable was, at lunchtime, one of the teachers, who at the time, that man was a four-year person at PwC, so only four years my senior. Yeah, he took me to Faleen's basement, which yeah. was in Boston. Sure, and he bought me two long-sleeve white shirts
1: to make you fit in, feel like you fit, fit in. in.
2: And that's when I knew I was at the right place, despite all the. And you never that left. I, I never left.
1: Wow. Yeah.
2: And he's one of my partners today. He's actually Is one he? of my partners today.
1: Yeah. You're his boss now.
2: <laughs> I think I work for our partners, but uh, yeah, he's there one of my you go. Partners.
1: Um, but it does go to, the, I mean, the story, the lesson yeah. being you saw for a moment yeah. what it felt like to be an outsider a right. little bit right. because of your shirt, not right. to the extent that so many people in this right. country feel right. like they're not understood. Um, what, what's going to tell you, Tim, in all of this that that you've succeeded?
2: I was walking out of the office on the way here, and one of our professionals walked by, saw I was in a bit of hurry, and he said, I just want to thank you for all you're doing. He wasn't talking about our growth rate. I knew exactly what he was talking about. We'll know we succeeded when people feel safe talking about the workplace, but there's a whole bunch of milestones on the way, Poppy. It's going to a CEO event and have a CEO pull you aside and say, I just want to say thank you because now I'm having the conversations that I should have been having.
1: This also goes back to your elementary school days. Is that right? I mean, living through integration of your elementary school. Yeah. How how do you think that shaped you and your thinking and your actions today?
2: So when I I grew up, I started when I grew up through second grade, I was in Boston and in 1974, Boston had the forced integration of um, by a judge's order of the school system. I can remember watching that on TV and we had we moved right around that time we moved to the suburbs just over the city line. I can remember watching it with my mother, seeing rocks being thrown at school buses, seeing cars, bombs, car fires going on. And I remember just watching it in fear with my mother and I am saying, that's not respectful. Like That's not right. And you begin to understand that we're, we're, while we're all the same, we all don't have the same environment we're growing up. And for me, that was very formative, I think for many people, seeing that happen and play out. What
1: about your kids now? You're a father of six yeah. children, yeah. wow. Yeah. Uh, I, I, you know, I don't yeah. know if you sleep, but yeah. kudos to you yeah. and, and your wife yes. on that. Yeah. You're a father of six. How do you teach your kids these lessons today when, frankly, they have grown up, I would assume yes. pretty privileged, a yes. pretty, you know, yeah. privileged life? How do you still teach them these lessons?
2: So the, their ages are 18 to 9. They teach me a lot first. But every teachable opportunity that we get we pull them out and pull them aside, whether it be behavior, whether it be pointing out how lucky we are. They travel. They, do, I will take turns having them travel with me mm-hmm. where they can see the world. I'm blessed to be able to see the world, and whether it be a trip to Europe or a trip to Chicago or a trip to the West Coast, and we talk about things, and by giving them exposure to the world. They really get a sense, A, how lucky we are, and B, what the opportunity is to be even more inclusive.
1: More from my interview with PwC's Tim Ryan after the break. I read, and I'm wondering if you can confirm. Take me back to during the during the banking crisis and financial crisis 2008. Um, you weren't chairman at the time, but you're working with the big financial clients, and you were pressing them all to be more transparent and more forthcoming. Um, and it's been reported that you told AIG to declare a material weakness yeah. as related to the credit default swaps. AIG did not. That was a big reason for their near collapse. Um, is that true? And if so, can you just tell me a little bit about your thinking behind that?
2: So I, w- I was the lead partner at AIG during uh, prior to and, and during the financial crisis. And in 2007, a year before the crisis, um, AIG declared a material weakness, and and I did have a very strong point of view. Um, I was lucky to be working with a board that understood their responsibility, and from my perspective, did a good job of declaring that material weakness. And that material weakness called out some oversight problems mm-hmm. around credit default swaps, uh, oversight problems around information flow within the company. Mm-hmm. To be clear, Poppy, one of the hardest things that I ever had to do. And I was lucky enough to be working with a board that understood their role, but it was very hard.
1: Was there pushback, or is this reporting wrong that that at first they they did not want to declare that as a material weakness? I
2: think any time you have bad news, there's a discussion. That okay,
1: so you had so, to push push for this. Yeah,
2: I mean, our job, the job that I had at the time, our job is to be independent, objective, and to call it like you see it, and and to share how you view it. Over time, ultimately, we, we all agreed that was the right thing to do, to have that material weakness, but it wasn't easy.
1: And AIG survived.
2: They did. They did a great job, and I'm very proud. I'm very proud of the culture of the company and, and how they came through it.
1: Income inequality <clears> <throat> in this country, yeah. it's a topic that I care deeply about, yeah. that my team and I yeah. cover a lot. Yeah. Uh, I've been incredibly fortunate through my life, and, yeah. and you know, I think that it's just unfair that yeah. people born in different zip codes don't have the same you know, chances, and as Warren Buffett calls it, he says he won the ovarian lottery. Um, Do you see the income inequality in this country as as a a societal risk, as something we should be focused more on?
2: I do, without a doubt. To be clear, I was lucky enough at PwC about six years ago to study major trends, and one of them was demographics, and demographics cuts across race it cuts across age, and it cuts across income inequality. And the reality is, demographically, we have some major challenges and I would say opportunities. We have to close the gap on income inequality in the United States. If we don't create opportunities for everybody, we will not maintain the leadership position we have in the global stage.
1: So do those who listen to that and say, well, that's socialist?
2: Uh, I don't think so, I think it's, I, I, I hope they don't because I think this is about keeping capitalism alive. To the extent Why
1: it, is this needed to keep capitalism alive? Be, that's interesting. Because if,
2: if we don't have people who can buy our goods and services and who are benefiting from all the good things that our companies are doing, we will not survive in the long term. Mm-hmm. We will not get access to the talent. We won't have people to buy the goods and services out there. And ultimately, they will revolt against our businesses. They'll judge our brands harshly. Mm-hmm. And that's not going to keep the business going.
1: Opportunity for young people in this Country, it it has abounded in the past. It certainly did for you. Mm -hmm. Look at your trajectory. Is there enough opportunity for America's youth today?
2: So if if my six kids would ever listen to me, and that's a big (laughs) if, this is the best opportunity in the world. Most people who are young want an opportunity. They want, to use a baseball analogy, they want an at bat. They want the chance to make a difference. Many people look at the challenges that our country has, and I sit there and I think everyone's an opportunity. I think this generation is going to help us take advantage of these opportunities more than ever.
1: But what about the education system? I mean, is that not in parts failing our kids on that front?
2: That education system is an opportunity to fix it. And, and I think when you look at the, the willingness, the innovation the understanding of the responsible society that, that our people are graduating Some college Amazing now. teachers. They're, they're, we're gonna get it fixed. and through activism and movements and whatnot, I, I, I feel optimistic.
1: Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, parental leave at, at your company. Frankly, yes. not something I thought about, talked yeah. about a lot until I mm-hmm. became a parent right. and you know saw what paid leave meant for me, for my husband mm-hmm. to be an equal partner and parent. Um, at PwC, it is six to eight weeks fully paid leave leave yes, for is. for for mothers and fathers. Yes. Um, so you know some of your competitors are beating you on that front right. now. Right. Are we going to see a change in policy?
2: So what I would say, we're always looking at our policies when we step back. So parental leave, hugely important. But one of the things that we've also done is our body of programs and, and support we're putting over our families, a massive flexible culture, major investment technology to help our people, a student loan benefit, the only professional service firm that offers is Offers their people a student loan benefit to help make sure they deal with the high student loan burden coming off of campus. We are very proud of the overall benefits package that we offer, but we're always looking at
1: it. So maybe yes. Do moms and new moms and dads should the paid time off be equal? Absolutely. You have said, uh, big picture here at PwC, I will have considered it a personal epic failure if all I have if all I do is grow PwC by twenty yeah. percent. So what is your end goal in all of this? Because it's clearly not just the bottom line and the metrics.
2: Yeah, my, my goal is, is to help be one of the many leaders who can help American business be relevant on inclusion. That, that's my goal. I would love to be remembered as somebody who led a movement that had America's workplaces be fully inclusive because well business alone can't solve education business alone can't solve century yeah. can't solve the fact that for centuries people have been disadvantaged but what we can do is control the best we can uh-huh. within our workplaces the topic of inclusion and if I can be remembered as, remembered as somebody who was a big part of that that for me would be a big accomplishment
1: and then a run for office
2: <laughs> we'll see We'll see. We'll right see.
1: You've already right. got your political answers down. No,
2: <laughs> we'll <laughs> see. I, I, there's a tremendous opportunity to, to help society. That's a big part of who so, we are. So, so
1: maybe. I mean, so yeah. maybe seriously, maybe. Tim, you after you know however long this stint lasts, yeah. you might be interested in going to Washington.
2: It is it is something that's very attractive to be able to help. Where we you know, where we need to go as a country.
1: So that answer is starkly different from the answer I get from most of these CEOs, mm. because yeah. they tell me that they feel like they can get more done in the corner office than in Washington, that it's so, the problems in Washington are so, uh, I mean, the the, the lack of bipartisanship, for example, and they feel like they can't affect change there. You are more optimistic and think you could affect change in Washington. I,
2: I think one of the skill sets that we need is we need bridge builders. We need people who can find common ground. And we need people who can pull people together, find a common problem, and try to get it solved. And in our professional service business, it's all about finding common ground.
1: So if you do decide to run, come back here. Tell us. I will. Let us know. I will. I appreciate uh, what you're doing. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Poppy. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Boss Files. If you're a new fan of the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and subscribe. While you're there, leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. As always, you can follow me at Poppy Harlow CNN.